Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Job chapter 7. In Job chapter 6, Job began to answer the first speech of Eliphaz. But as we said, it wasn't really an answer. Job's speech does not correspond precisely with Eliphaz's speech. He answers some of the questions raised, but then he kind of breaks off and says some random things that are not obviously related to the points that had previously been raised. Many see this, of course, as a sign of authenticity. This is, in fact, how wounded people would be expected to argue. Pain is exhausting, and it renders us irrational. And there is something of the irrational in Job's speeches. He is not wrong, but he is not entirely rational. Again, we remember Calvin's key, that Job's friends make a poor case well. They are wrong, but entirely rational. Whereas Job makes a good case poorly. He's right, but often rash and more than a little disoriented. So here, Job begins to answer his critics, but then he sort of wanders off. And the second half of his speech, which we're reading here in chapter 7, is more of a soliloquy. Job is speaking now to himself. And then at the end, he's speaking to God. He is pleading with God to put an end to his life and to consider his pathetic situation before it is too late. Job is literally all over the map here which again is what we would expect from a terribly wounded man. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Has not man a hard service on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired hand? This appears to be the last thing that Job says to his friends in this speech. This comment or question, actually, about the human experience causes him to begin reflecting aloud, seemingly into the air, about his own peculiar suffering, which then transitions into a direct appeal to God in prayer. The question that Job asks is itself worthy of our attention. Job points out the fact that in general, human life is hard, rather like the experience of a hired servant. I think that's worth seeing here simply because of the contrast it provides with the bizarre statement made by Eliphaz that he had never in his life seen an exception to the general rule that good people are blessed and bad people are cursed. Eliphaz said, laughably, that he had never observed a good person living a difficult life, which only proves that Eliphaz's own wealth had shielded him entirely from normal human experience. And the same was probably true of Job until his suffering proved to him otherwise. And that, I think, is one of the takeaways. Suffering engenders a sense of identification with the plight of humanity as a whole. Suffering makes us sympathetic. It causes us to feel the same thing. That's what the word sympathetic means. It, it, it makes us sympathetic with those who are suffering. That's one of the reasons mentioned in the Bible for the experience of suffering by good and godly people. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4, the Apostle Paul says, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Are you hearing that? Paul says that God allows us to be afflicted and then comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort other people who are experiencing various afflictions with the comfort which we ourselves have received from God. God allows his people to suffer, at at least this is one of the reasons, so that they can identify with and minister to the many hurting people of the world. Now, that isn't the answer to the question, but it is a factor to be considered. Job, all of the sudden, is aware of the human condition. He is aware that, by and large, people in this world suffer. Life is hard, and things do not seem to be going the way we sense they should be going. The rich can hide from that reality. But Job now is sitting in it. Verse 2, like a slave who longs for the shadow, and like a hired hand who looks for his wages, so I am allotted months of emptiness, and nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night is long, and I am full of tossing till the dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. Some scholars see in verse 3 an indication that Job has been suffering now for months. The events that led to his suffering may have occurred all within a couple of days, but now he's been sitting in this valley of despair for months. We don't know whether it's three months or six months or nine months. We just know it is months. His wealth was destroyed, his children died, and his body was afflicted, and Job has been sitting in that agony for months. And of course, that makes sense, given that his friends have assembled from great distances away. It would have taken some time for the news to reach them, some time for them to communicate with each other, and then some time to travel to Job's home. And still, after all that time, Job is languishing in the same condition. And there is no relief, Job says. Even the nighttime is pure agony. I can't sleep because of the itching and swelling and infected mess of my skin. He says that his skin is a mass of worms and dirt, which is not unexpected if you've been scraping your boils with a piece of broken pottery. Job didn't know about microbes and germs and sterilization. Nobody knew about those things until relatively recently. So Job has made a bad situation even worse, and he cannot find a moment's relief. Verse 7, and he's clearly talking to God now. He says, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone as the cloud fades and vanishes. So he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him anymore. 
Here, Job reminds God that human life is very short. And so if he's going to do something, he needs to do it now. Job will not last much longer. He can feel the life force ebbing out of him. Verse 11. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Here is the expression of Job's faith. He knows his time is short. He knows that his situation is desperate. Therefore, he will not restrain his mouth. Job never stops calling out to God. God, I need an answer. God, I need deliverance. Lord, I need to know that you see me. Job suffers and agonizes as a believer. He never looks anywhere else for help and rescue. So as long as he has breath, he will be knocking on God's door. And the brother has some questions. Verse 12, am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? When I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint. Then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every minute. How long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? Here Job is saying, am am I a a, a sea monster or some kind of mythical creature that you've come out of heaven to make war on me? I am a lowly human being. Why are you so interested in me? Now, by the way, stop and hear that. Job is so unlike a modern man here. A modern man would interpret his suffering as a sign of God's disinterest and inactivity. The the, the modern man, if he spoke to God at all in his pain, would ask, Did you fall asleep, Lord? Do you just not care about me? Is that why this has happened? But that's the opposite of what Job says. Job knows that God is is in this. Job knows that God is sovereign. He kills and he makes alive. He wounds and he heals. And there is none that can deliver from his hand. Therefore, Job's question is entirely different. He asks, why will you not look away? Why are you so obsessed with me? Why are you so interested in me? I just want to die. Why do you prolong this experiment? What do you want to know? What can I show you to end this painful inspection? Job knows that he is wrestling with God throughout this entire ordeal. God has him by the face and will not let him go. Job wants to escape, even for a few hours in sleep. But even in sleep, God is there testing him and terrifying him. Why will you not look away? Why will you not let me go? What is it you want from me? That's what Job is asking here. And he does not have the necessary theological resources to answer his own question. We see that in verses 20 to 21. If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. Job's theology is basically the same 
as his friends. He believes in the direct connection between sin and suffering. Therefore, he thinks he knows that the forgiveness of God is the only way out of punitive or retributive suffering. But, and here's the problem, Job has already offered sacrifices for sin. We saw him doing that back in chapter 1, verse 13. And, and he's unaware of any massive sin, sin with a high hand, you might say, that would warrant this sort of attention in the first place. So he calls out to God and he asks, Lord, what have I done to so offend you? How have I so roused your ire and irritation? Tell me what to do to make amends. I, I, I want to make things right before I pass from this earth forever. Speak to me soon, Lord, for I am perishing. I think you could make the argument that this is the closest Job comes to sinning in the entire dialogue. Now, remember, I've said that a fair bit of what Job has said shouldn't actually be weighed to begin with. A lot of what he says is just words to the wind, the, the, the sound of a wounded animal bleating and moaning in a ditch. But insofar as he says coherent and intelligible things, these things, among those things, come the closest to actual sin and error yet without actually crossing the line. D.A. Carson says here, far from confessing sin, he tells God that he is being picked on. Or if he has sinned, he has not done anything to deserve this sort of minute attention and painful judgment. Indeed, Job comes within a whisker of implying that God himself is not quite fair. Thus, Job maintains his integrity, closed quote. As in, thus, by a hair, Job maintains his integrity. He comes right up to the line and stops. He asks hard, honest, brutal questions, coming as close to the line as humanly possible, but he does not accuse God of doing wrong. But he admits that he can see no other legitimate option. And apparently, that's okay. You can express your limited understanding to God. You can say, I don't see any other way to look at this God. You can say, how can this mean anything other than that you are cruel or indifferent to me, God? You can ask questions like that. Because questions like that leave room for legitimate factors beyond your present state of knowledge. Those are the questions of a finite creature to an infinite creator, and they remain just inside the realm of faith. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. 
here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on the ground experience with. Mile one is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 